Hello, welcome to the Tech for Good podcast. We are very passionate about two things, technology and our world. In each pod, we will be interviewing some fascinating people, business leaders, but those with a special interest in solving the biggest issues facing humanity today. Think the environment, think healthcare provision during a pandemic, think global social injustice. If you want to know more about technology's immense potential to fix and transform, then you're in the right place. In this episode, I speak to Andrea Danes. Andrea is Global Human Services Leader for EY, leading on the company's work to support vulnerable populations with social programs, technology and transformation. In the interview, Andrea talks in detail about the challenges EY is confronting in this area. She champions the use of data as a preventative force, and she reveals how her own experiences growing up have shaped her career. But first, I ask Andrea to define human services. At its very simplest, it's Anything that an individual or a family would need to have a sense of well-being and hopefully even thriving. And then if you overlay that with where does government have the responsibility for supporting people to get to that baseline, that's really what we mean when we talk about human services from a government perspective. And what, what does the term mean to EY specifically? It's interesting, you know, we've we have a long history of helping government do a lot of things more effectively, more efficiently. But from my personal perspective, the work that we do in human services has to be some of the most important work that we do. It really affects government's ability to deliver those services, to change the quality of life for an individual, for a child, for a family. And obviously, government has a benefit directly back into society and into community when families are thriving, when people are operating at their best. So from my personal perspective, um, what we do in human services in EY is incredibly important. And we're also um, we're able to be very innovative and, and slightly disruptive, I said, in the, the kindest of ways. Um, we've we've really not spent you know three and four decades entrenching ourselves in existing business models. So that gives us the freedom and the flexibility to really be creative with our clients, those leaders who know things can be done differently, but just need that extra vision or thinking or horsepower to get it done. That's good to hear, Andrew. We know big organizations like EY often have challenges around sort of agility and being flexible. So that's that's a really positive. We're going to talk about some of the programs that that you you are running in a minute. But maybe, Andrew, can you first talk about some of the, the challenges that you're confronting in a bit of detail? I mean, th- these are really important issues, aren't they? And I guess everything that's happened over the last 18 months with, with COVID-19 as well has, has almost highlighted them even more. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head with that comment. Um, Those of us that have worked in human services always knew there were problems, always knew there were opportunities to do things better, but it took a global pandemic for that to become what I would say dinner table conversation. You know, now my family is actually interested in what I do for a living because they've seen headlines that they can relate to. You know, unemployment numbers were soaring, health implications uh, were happening and and people were struggling with that. The rent moratoriums and, and housing and evictions and things that all of a sudden were front page headlines or the top news stories. 
those are the types of programs that that I personally have worked in for over almost 30 years, and EY certainly has been involved in for a long time. Um, the other thing that we deal with a lot of times is really this this mindset in government that you have an accountability and a responsibility, rightly so, for how you deliver services because you're using taxpayer money. So you have to be very thorough and very thoughtful. But oftentimes it's that thoroughness and that thoughtfulness that actually impedes government's ability to deliver effectively in a way like Amazon can because they're you know, a private organization without that additional level of responsibility. Um, and not just Amazon, that could be anyone. So I think we, we see this tension right now between this understanding that there's a greater need than there's ever been, acknowledgement across the globe that we've got to do things better, and government's ongoing responsibility to be very thoughtful in how they change and how they deliver and how they, they transform. Maybe then, Andrea, talk us through some of the, the main work that EY is doing in this area. What are the programs you, you're kind of most proud of, the programs you want to speak about? So I'll do, I'm going to take a little bit of a matrixed approach to that because part of understanding what we're doing is understanding the types of programs that we're supporting. So family well-being, child protection, housing services, uh, services to disabled individuals, sometimes it's food or cash assistance, mental health services, services for our aging population. We lean a little bit then into youth justice and um, corrections, but that you know, obviously those lines are connected to human services, but those sit a bit on the fringes of what we would call our human services category. Same thing with physical health. There's no denying physical health is directly related to environmental and social factors, but we have a health science and wellness group that really focuses on the physical health aspect. So if you kind of look at that as the framework of the types of programs that we're working in, then the second frame that I would give you to overlay with that is kind of four buckets where we really specialize. One is mission and strategy. If you want to do things differently, how do you even start? What's the vision for different? What does different mean? And then how do you engage stakeholders in really making that happen? Um, there are a lot of folks that do good strategy work, and then that strategy work gets in a nice three-ring binder and sits on the shelf and <laughs> collects dust. Our strategy work is, uh, our, the heart and soul of our strategy work is action. Everything that we develop from a strategic perspective has to be related to an actual action and accountability for that action, and sometimes even across the ecosystem. Uh, I have a one government client that said to me, I'm tired of my agency staff being the only ones with action items. We have a whole ecosystem of providers, of caregivers, of service delivery and nonprofits, and, and I want them to have a stake in transformation as well, and some of those action items associated with what's going to be required to get us there. So that mission and strategy is, is really upfront. Um, Human-centered design. This is not unique to government. It's not unique to human services, but it is incredibly important in this space and becoming more and more so. This idea, I know it will probably surprise you, that the people who are being served should have a voice in how the programs are operated and how they're connecting to residents, to individuals, to citizens, to refugees, and how transparent that process is, how easy to navigate that process is. And honestly, right now it's pretty difficult. Um, I, I have experience, uh, we have three adult children. The youngest came to us through the foster care system. So I got to navigate through the programs that I worked inside of as a state, a government employee, and understand it's not intuitive. 
it's not what we had hoped it would be. It's really difficult to figure out how to navigate this. And if you're talking about an individual or family that's in the middle of a crisis, the last thing they need is additional complication. So human-centered design is that second bucket and it's important and it's big. And we're drawing a lot from our commercial experience. This is one of the beautiful things I love about being at EY. You know, there's a lot of companies that their profit is based on how well they know their consumer and how well they serve their consumer. So we can pull that human-centered design consumer experience through into the government space related to human services and give them a much better access path to help. Um, data for purpose. I am Ben. I'm a data geek at heart. So there's a hat with a propeller on the top somewhere in my future. I'm positive and I'm super proud of that. We have a ton of data in human services and we don't use it very effectively. We don't understand what we already know about people. We don't use what we know about them to help them and to help them navigate the system. And privacy and security of data is always our utmost concern. We totally understand and recognize that there are biases within the data that have to be recognized and dealt with, but it's still a super powerful and underutilized tool. And then community engagement sits that fourth bucket. That's really where we help government be more connected down at the local level. Maybe that's another government entity at the county or the city level. Maybe it's a nonprofit or faith-based organization. But those, those groups that are really involved in, in serving that community and those individuals too. Um, and the data for purpose, the predictive analytics piece, just to back up to bucket three for a minute, that's super exciting to me. Hi, I'm Daniel Brigham, editor of the Tech for Good magazine. I hope you're enjoying this pod, and if you want more, why not head over to techforgood.net for some amazing and thought-provoking stories. You can read about one company's mission to use digital technologies in the fight against HIV, or learn how social media can help refugees take control of their narratives. For those insights and more, read and subscribe at techforgood.net. I want to pick up on something you said there about action and the need for action, because I think there's certainly a perception around public sector and inaction and being slow to move and, and slow to embrace technology and digital services. Do you think the pandemic has changed that? Is that what you're seeing as, as you as you work with with these agencies, as you call them in the, in the US and, and, and try to deliver this change? Yeah, and I would say even with our teams globally, the pandemic forced technology specifically to move a decade or two ahead of where it would have been without the pandemic. All of a sudden, people couldn't leave their homes, offices were shut down. The only access that people had was through some kind of technology, um, and, and it just forced that modernization. The challenge is it, it wasn't always super thoughtful modernization. It was kind of let's throw a website together, let's throw an app together, you know, let's stand up a call center. So now there's a real opportunity to, um, to clean up a bit some of that modernization and to make it even more effective. And I think you have to find the right leader. You know, it's, it's a challenge for those who've been asked to step into a government leadership program to be willing to step out and to try something different and do something different and to, to be accountable for the outcome of that difference. So finding this technology advancement and the right leader, that's the sweet spot. That's, that's the place where we're focusing. 
Good stuff, Andrea. Right. Let's talk a bit more about data then and the intelligent use of it, because I'm sure there is a lot of data being generated, but it's it's that's not the question, is it? It's about how you how you deploy that that data and information to to, to do very good things in the, in this example. So where do you think the biggest difference can be made with with data? And you mentioned data for purpose there. What other things are you running with that? I mean, a bit, a bit more on that would be great. So interestingly, our whole entire ecosystem around human services is set up to be reactive. We wait for something bad to happen, and then we try to go back in and, and pick up the pieces and help an individual or family pick up the pieces and try to fix it. All of the data that we have is really retrospective, similar to that approach. We collect data after bad things have happened. We're collecting data as bad things are happening. But now we have figured out that with the data that we have, not only through these programs, but other data that can be accessed, publicly available information, census data, uh, you know, things that are, that are just widely shared and used and accepted to be used. When you add all those data pieces together and you take all the research, the mountains of research that exist about what does it look like when someone's trending toward homelessness, what are the things that usually happen right before a child is harmed in their home? When you look at the research that has very clear indicators and you look at the data and you add those two things together, you can start to see a trend towards something bad happening as that trend is unfolding. And when you recognize that as the trend is unfolding, it gives government this great opportunity to get involved sooner. Instead of waiting until the bad thing happens and trying to get everybody back to level, you can actually jump in earlier, offer assistance earlier, and potentially avoid that outcome. And, and if it's okay with you, I'm going to drill in really quickly to a concrete example because everybody smiles and nods and says, oh, that's great, but it, it, we can't really do that. Yeah, we can. We are actually doing that. So we've got uh, two different boroughs in London that are um, allowing us to be their partner in exactly this as it relates to homelessness. And so what we're doing is we're taking data, again, with all concerns around privacy and security and appropriate use of data, but we're aligning that data around an individual with a trend toward risk of homelessness. And when we see that trend occurring or unfolding, offering assistance earlier in one particular borough, Effectively, in the 650 plus alerts that we saw in the pilot of the program, those who were at highest risk got the early intervention. Only 0.4% of them actually became homeless. The remainder who did not get that early intervention, 40%, 40% became homeless. So that is, you know, it's a 650 plus alerts. It's a very small microcosm of what exists everywhere globally, not just around homelessness or housing security, but it's proof that if you use data for good and you use it to, and I'll say this, data for good to me really, Ben, is about what do you do when you know what you know? If you know what you know and you do something that's a penalty or a punishment, that's not the kind of work that EY is involved in. But if you know what you know from the data and you use it to drive an action that actually gets a better outcome for the person that you have the data about, that's the work we're doing. That's what we're doing in child protection. That's what we're doing in homelessness or shelter security. And, and we are just barely scratching the surface of the power and potential of that. It's really encouraging and inspirational, to be honest, Andrew, to, to hear an example like that and to, to, to get a sense of what, what more could be achieved with, with, with similar approaches. If, if there's a, a public sector or government 
agency or department or whoever looking to make they, they understand that data is a, a thing that they need to tap into they need to do more but they don't know how to do it what advice what, what's the best advice you could give or ey gives to to people in that situation who recognize the date the potential in data but don't really know the next steps first thing is to to have a dedication to doing it i think that's you know that leadership piece i go back to that again and again the technology is not our impediment the data is not our impediment and not even the access to data or responsible sharing of data it's the leadership the vision it's setting that expectation that we are going to be proactive that we are going to make that shift and we are going to be committed to doing all of the hard work that it takes to get there and then the second piece of advice would be to start small it's amazing how, you know, literally, if you keep one family from ending up homeless, that's a success story. If you keep one child from being harmed in the home, that's a success story. If you keep one family together because you provide those services before things get critical, that's a success story. So this idea that we have to transform the entirety of everything all at once is where people just get stuck and, and it's too big and it's too cumbersome and it's too mind boggling to move forward. We help our clients find one particular area. We look at the data that they have available, what the research shows toward risk trending. We find that one place where they can get started. And I will tell you, um, to use an analogy my mom used many times in many contexts, it's like eating a potato chip. You can't stop with just one. Once you find that little sweet spot of success and you see the difference that it can make. And by the way, the workforce within these government agencies gets a chance to be part of something successful, gets a chance to be part of something that's good, that's preventative. A lot of our caseworkers are just burnt out and we've got all kinds of headlines about that right now because their jobs are so difficult and challenging when you're constantly trying to fix something after something bad has already happened. So this shift is not only good for the people that are receiving services, it's really good for the people working inside government as well. They get to be part of, of making, you know, stopping bad things from happening and making families stronger and individuals stronger. Now, you've highlighted the potential of data, Andrew. You spoke about human-centered design as well. What are the other technologies, digital products that you think can really transform human services? Absolutely. Um, I was a government employee for ten over 10 years um, here in the United States. And so I have all respect for the hard work of government employees. But the truth of the matter is we're still doing a lot of things the way we were doing them when I started, which was now almost 30 years ago a lot of paper-based processes, a lot of job descriptions that are very similar to what they were in the 80s. And my favorite, favorite and not favorite example is the job description for a redacting agent, which is literally someone with a black Sharpie marker lining out you know, lines on a, a paper, a physical paper document. We have such technology, uh, whether it's robotic process automation, modernizing the processes, use of bots, none of those things are going to eliminate the workforce. Those things are going to help the workforce have the access to jobs that are actually current, that are, that are available and, and accessible in other markets. Um, so I think that type of basic modernization, um, use of smartphones, it's different from country to country globally, but in a lot of our countries, individuals have exponentially more smartphones than they do computers, laptop computers. 
but many government websites are still based on the old laptop model or the desktop model if we want to go back even further. And that's just not current. The, the mobile capabilities, mobile access to these programs and to communication, bi-directional communication with the individuals receiving services is a, a great opportunity in front of us right now. Um, it, there's a lot more, but I think those are probably the big pieces, the big pieces where we really have a chance to, to do something different. And I will throw one more in too. Most of these programs operate monolithic legacy and oftentimes COBOL-based systems still. And we've had so much conversation about, do you rip it out? Do you put something new in? How much benefit is migration to the cloud? Those sorts of things. And, and the truth of the matter is if legacy works, that's good. But there's a lot of microservices level improvements that can be done around that legacy system that can create a better experience for your employees, for your program, and for the people receiving services if you just do incremental modernization around that legacy platform. So again, tons and tons of opportunities. Who says children can't change the world? Our Teenage Tech Stories podcast showcases the extraordinary work of young entrepreneurs on their way to becoming tomorrow's tech leaders. Listen now via the Tech for Good podcast stream or by visiting techforgood.net. clearly so deeply knowledgeable and deeply passionate about this subject as well. Maybe give the listener a bit of insight into, into your story, your background. How, how did you get to where you are today and where, where do you think that passion comes from? I have almost 30 years in health and human services and the first decade was as a government employee working in our child protection and our Medicaid, which is government sponsored health insurance basically here in the US. Um, I learned a lot as a government employee, took that knowledge into the private sector and worked for an IT company with a cloud-based solution and worked for two smaller consultancies um, prior to joining EY. Uh, what's most interesting to me though, I think across all of those experiences is always seeing opportunities to do things better, always looking for the power of data. Uh, again, I mentioned I'm a data geek at heart and always looking for the opportunity to cross-pollinate from one program to the other. And those, that's the professional version of me, but I have to slip slightly back into, you know, kind of the more personal side, because it's really, I think, the heart of why I love what I do and I do what I do. I grew up with a single mom. We had government assistance for our housing. We had uh, food assistance and free lunches. Um, and my mom worked very hard raising, you know, two daughters on her own. So uh, this myth about individuals who need help, you know, just sitting around waiting for the government to help, that's, that's a myth. I know that firsthand. And I know how important that assistance was to myself, my mom, and my sister. I think the other thing, though, that was also uh, enlightening, I mentioned we have three grown children now, and the youngest came to us through our foster care system. So when she came into our home, I was like, oh, this I know these programs. I can do this. I can get her all the assistance she's entitled to. And I spent hours on the phone. I had to fax things. And, and I yeah, I, some of our listeners won't even know what a fax is, right? That's how archaic some of this stuff is. Um, the website was not intuitive. And again, these are the programs I worked inside of. So sitting there having this epiphany that, if I, with the knowledge of the programs that I have, not in the middle of a life crisis, cannot get this done, what hope does anybody have who is sitting in a moment of crisis of trying to navigate the complexity we've built? 
And, and that just, it was like, boom, that's, that's what I want to spend the rest of my life working on is, is how do we make this better? How do we do a better job? And I'll, I'll make a very bold statement right now in human services. The lack of transformation is not a lack of funding. The pandemic opened the doors to a lot of funding, not just in the US, but in a lot of other countries. We have the money to make the change, to make it different. We need the leadership, we need the vision, and we need the actionable, executionable plan to get it done. Is that the key, would you say, Andrew, is, is the leadership? Because we can talk about technology and data and all of the processes and plans around it, but is it about leadership just taking this issue and really dealing with it? Absolutely. And we're seeing that. And that's what's exciting. We're seeing bold leaders. Again, not nobody's out there on the bleeding edge. Everybody has accountability when you're spending taxpayer money. You know, there's this this balance that you walk. But those who understand I can be responsible with the funds that have been allocated to my program, but I can push the envelope and, and modernize what we're doing. Um, those are the leaders that we're working with. Those are the, the folks that we're identifying that are leaning in on the way we do things and help them think about things. And so overall, Andrew, I'm guessing you are optimistic. You're an optimist about the, about the future. And, and because this has been your career and a passion of yours professionally, personally, you've had you know, a personal story as well. Do, do you see a, a genuine change happening in the near future and, and ultimately people's lives improving because of, because of this? I absolutely do. I, I don't know that we can ever, I don't know that we'll ever solve all of the problems for everyone, but I think we have, we have a lot of pressure right now. People are demanding more of government. They're demanding a better access to government services. We have bold leaders who are stepping into place in government. We have money, we have funding, and certainly the technology exists. So being able to pull all of that together, and again, you know, the people perish for a lack of vision. It's really about helping to set that vision with the entirety of the ecosystem and the stakeholders out of the gate. And then everything that you do lines up with that. Many times the, the government officials that bring us in will say, we're working on this, 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 and it has these various deadlines. And it's like, take a step back. These things are all connected. All of these things impact them each other. And if we take one bigger step back and we put the person at the center and then we line out all of these initiatives, we're going to find ways to make them even better. And you're going to have at the end a more effective and efficient program. That's the other note about that reduction in homelessness that I didn't say. There's a tremendous amount of administrative savings in prevention. It costs a lot more. And, and we know this in our natural lives, right? In our real lives. If I don't get the oil changed in my car for a very long time, a blown engine is gonna cost me a lot more than those oil changes would have cost me over time. So it's, it's the same principle, just applied in this context. We can actually also save money through the government programs by making them more effective. And that's exciting. That was the Tech for Good podcast. Listen, subscribe, and rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.